Well, hello, and welcome to my podcast, Dissections of Medical History. My name is Preeti. I'm a medical student who loves learning about the brilliant, weird, and wacky journey that medicine has made throughout history. And I want to take you guys on the journey with me as we go and we dissect different individuals, different topics, different infections in each episode. And I just want to say thank you for listening. And it really means the most that you tuned in. And I hope you have a good time listening. So without further ado, let's hit it. So for this first episode, I thought it would be a great idea to start out with, you know, how do we prevent people from getting infections in the first place? You know, like how do we stop them or as much as our ability stop them from getting sick or getting infected wounds and just stuff like that? Because we all know generally that in the olden times, Middle Ages, uh, 1600s, Renaissance, what have you, that infections were pretty commonplace and it would be easy to get an open wound or an open cut and not know what to do with it and then it gets infected and then it spreads and ooh, out of luck there. But like when did when did people first realize this was a thing that you have to keep wounds clean, that you have to take precautions so that you don't catch a cold or catch a virus or whatever and we're gonna kind of set the scene for you right because before all of this advancement and theory and knowledge took place it was kind of messy for lack of a better word so picture that you're in the 19th century right 1800s and normally what would be a normal day-to-day everyday thing was when a surgeon would be operating on somebody, it kind of was like like you were going to see the opera or something. You know, people would buy tickets or they would buy seats to go see this operation and they would just come in from the street into the operating theater, like shoes dragging in dirt and asphalt and whatever else they stepped on and people, you know, wearing their clothes that had outside material on them and perfume and jewelry and and whatever what say you whatever generally that they would have on their clothes and they would kind of treat it like it was like an entertainment option they would just kind of buy their tickets go in take their seats and kind of look like ooh ah like ooh he's opening them up cool like he's opening his chest cool and it kind of just there was no cleanliness it no one really wash their hands surgeons they would operate on people and on uh, patient one and then that surgery would be over and then another person would be brought in and they would just continue operating without washing their hands without washing the tools the surgery tools nothing and actually it was really funny because when i was reading about this that back then when these surgeries were happening the more blood that the surgeons had on their hands and their clothes and their tools, the more like awesome it was. It was just kind of like, whoa, like that guy's so qualified to be doing so many surgeries because why else would he have that much blood on his body? And because of that like lack of cleanliness, no hand washing, no sterilization, just kind of open space where anybody could just look in possibly drop something i don't know what was going on but tons of infections kept happening people like surgery was is still a big deal now but back then surgery was like 
super, super, super difficult to survive. And mostly because after they had the surgeries, all these people, all these patients, they just kept getting infections and the infections would keep spreading and then it would get into the blood and then it would get all over their body and then they would die. And no one really knew why these infections kept happening or like why all these people kept dying. But I mean, if you're going to amputate someone's leg and not wash your hands and use tools that were used on someone else's heart right before, I mean, what can you, what can, you know, to us, it's super clear, like that that's probably a bad idea. But back then they didn't know, you know, they just kind of were like, this is, this is cool. This is good. We figured out through decades of research that we can get infections pretty easily and they're basically caused by these microorganisms in our environment and those microorganisms can cause and or lead to disease in our body or infections and that's the currently accepted explanation right it's called the germ theory of disease and it's the theory that whatever pathogens bacteria viruses aka microorganisms are in the environment in your area, if they get into areas that they're not supposed to get into in your body, then they can cause infection and or disease. And the general idea of this, like the the bread and butter of this germ theory of disease was first introduced and proposed by Persian and Arab physicians in the Middle East, well, what we now know as the Middle East. And then later it kind of made its way over to Europe But Europe wasn't really a big fan of this germ theory of disease at the time. This is the late Middle Ages, so like late 1300s, late 1400s. Europe wasn't really a big fan of this because the super like popular idea in Europe at the time was called the miasma theory or miasma theory. And this theory, this is what the Europeans thought, was that these diseases and these infections were basically caused by, quote-unquote, the bad air from surrounding organic matter. So basically, like, they thought that all these diseases and infections came from, like, polluted air, poor hygienic conditions, poor living conditions, and contaminated water. And because it didn't come from people, it came from stuff around you, they thought that you couldn't pass on these diseases to other people. Like, they weren't contagious because... You could only get the disease if you were exposed to those things. You couldn't get it if you were just next, sitting next to somebody. You physically yourself had to be exposed to those factors. And that was kind of like prevalent over and over and over. And then in the 19th and 20th centuries, stuff started to change. You know, like a transition was happening. And it all started with this... These two scientists, the first one is Agostino Bassi, and he kind of just did experiments that showed that diseases weren't caused by bad air, they're caused by these microorganisms, and then it was kind of expanded upon, expanded upon by these two physicians named Oliver Wendell Holmes, not related to Sherlock Holmes. Oliver Holmes was American, and the other physician's name was Ignaz Semmelwells. So Oliver and Ignaz, they both did similar experiments, except Oliver did it in America and Ignaz did it in Austria. And Ignaz Semmelwells was an obstetrician. So he 
was responsible for maternal care, baby care, delivering babies, making sure mom and baby were both a-okay. And he basically noticed that there was such a high maternal mortality rate, which is like out of 100, how many mothers are dying from childbirth versus living? And a high maternal, maternal mortality rate means that you have a lot of women who unfortunately are dying as a result of childbirth or complications from childbirth. And so he was noticing like when these women were delivering their babies or going through labor, a lot of them would die from, from fevers and, and, sick, and illnesses that kind of were more obvious or manifested after delivery. And he noticed that this only happened, like these infections and these deaths and this high mortality rate in these women only happened when the doctors and the medical students were the ones assisting the births. But when the midwives were the ones delivering or assisting in labor and delivery, the rates weren't that high. It, you know, childbirth was relatively safe when the midwives were delivering it compared to when the doctors and the medical students were delivering it. So he was like, this is, this is not right. And so he kind of did a lot of observations and was paying more attention. And eventually he realized that the doctors and the medical students, they came from doing autopsies because back then a doctor did everything. And so what these doctors and medical students would do is they would be in the city's office or wherever they did autopsies at that time. And they would work on these dead bodies, these cadavers, and do their autopsies, make their reports, and then they would go directly over to the woman giving birth and then use their hands to assist. And like I said, they didn't wash their hands. So a lot of cross-contamination happening. And, you know, the midwives, they don't do the autopsies. They don't do that. They are solely focused on assisting the women with their labor and delivery. And so they didn't have to they didn't have as much cross-contamination as these medical doctors did. And so Ignaz Semmelweis was like, huh, maybe this fever that these women are getting is contagious because it's spreading from these doctors and these medical students. So maybe it's got to be something caused by the autopsies because that's the only connection that you have here. And so what this guy did, he's super smart what this doctor did, Dr. Semmelwells, he made all of the doctors and all of the medical students wash their hands with chlorinated lime water before examining the women or assisting with the births. And after doing this, he noticed that the maternal mortality rate had a, a dramatic reduction. Like it decreased so low to the point where you couldn't deny that hand washing really saved a lot of these women's lives and um you know that's such strong compelling evidence you would think right like hey these doctors these medical students are doing these autopsies they're going to these women right after and then the women are getting sick and they're dying the midwives are not doing that so that's why the women are not dying so i made the doctors and medical students wash their hands and now women are not dying and you would think that would be enough but no even with all of this evidence he and his theories were rejected by the medical establishment of the time. And they were just they just were like, no, this is not this is not true. This isn't what's happening. We're just gonna we're not gonna pay attention. So then 
as time goes on, we have Jon Snow enter the picture. Not Jon Snow from from Game of Thrones, although I wish because that would have been super cool. But Jon Snow, he's from the UK. He was a scientist. And he focused on cholera to prove that like things in the environment, these microorganisms cause disease. It's not just like the bad air or whatever else around you it's actual microorganisms so he noticed that cholera so cholera back then was a big thing and it's basically spread by the fecal oral route so a lot of water sewage systems are involved and he basically recommended that hey since it involves water and sewage anytime somebody uses their water to cook you should filter out the water and you should boil it before using it and so he basically sent out a boil water thing. And even today we'll get those notifications. I don't know if you guys still get them, but I remember like a couple months ago in my area, we lost, something happened with the county's like water system and they basically sent out a boil water advisory, 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 sorry, advisory to all of us where they basically were like, hey, we don't know if the water is being filtered like it normally is, so we recommend that you boil your water before using it for cooking or for drinking. And so we did that for a few hours until we got the notice that everything was okay. But, you know, some of these methods we still use today to kind of keep ourselves safe. And so Jon Snow, what he did was he advised everyone to do that, you know, boil your water before using it. And he he identified the water pump that everyone's been using that was the actual site of the outbreak and he put the pump out of use. He was like, nobody used this pump. We're not going to use it. And it actually really helped reduce the outbreak of cholera that was happening at the time. And, you know, this would have been such a major thing for public health, for epidemiology, for medicine. And it should have been a really public thing. But this was also rejected. Like, people just really didn't like change. They really didn't like being told that this whole miasma or miasma theory that they had been going on was wrong and it just wasn't true. And so they just kept rejecting all of these like advancements that these guys made. And it was kind of continuing until our dear old friend, Louise, Louis, Louis, he's French. So I'm going to say it's Louis, Louis Pasteur came onto the scene. And I feel like most people know or have heard of, or are somewhat familiar with his name, but he was from France, and he did these experiments that we now know as pasteurization, but basically he focused on milk, and he noticed that, you know, milk and a lot of other liquids would get spoiled super quickly because, you know, they didn't have refrigerators back then, so he was wondering, you know, why, what is causing these things to go bad, and his experiments pretty much proved that milk and other liquids at the time or even now, they're spoiled by these particles that, you know, the particles are in the air, the microorganisms are in the air, and they are what's causing the spoiling, but the air itself is not the culprit, it's the things in the air. And, you know, the miasma theory was the idea that the air itself was the culprit, and he was like, no, 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 it's the microorganisms in the air that get into the liquid, when if it's not stored properly, that caused it to spoil. And this was, for some reason, this experiment was like the major evidence that kind of made germ theory 
come onto the scene and gain more attention and gain more like, hey, maybe we should look at this a little bit more. And so that's what he's known for. But before him, there were these other scientists who kind of went on their own and faced the consequences. They were pretty much shunned from the establishment. But, you know, better late than never. And after him, we have Robert Koch, who was a scientist from Germany. And he kind of like expanded upon Pasteur's idea. And he created these postulates or these like these rules to be able to identify disease causing microorganisms because not every microorganism causes disease, right? Like not every little thing, not every bacteria is bad. So he kind of made these rules. Like if these bacteria follow these rules, then they most likely cause disease. And like not, it was four rules, four postulates and not all four of them are needed. But in the time that he was alive, it kind of helped categorize what was infectious, what wasn't infectious, you know, what to look out for, what not to look out for. And all of these guys, you know, like all of these guys kind of set the stage for our star of the show today, which who, our star of the show, who is Dr. Joseph Lister. And he's a very famous guy, pretty much a lot of going on, but we're going to start at the beginning, right? Because he's the star of the show. We got to figure out how he came to be the way he came to be and like how, why and how his brain worked the way it did in a society and in a time where it really took a lot to to be able to have people believe you when you say, hey, this is actually what's causing the disease, right? So Dr. Joseph Lister, he was born on April 5th, 1827, near London to a Quaker family. He was the second of six siblings. His dad was a scientist and a port wine merchant. And his mom used to work at a Quaker school for the poor before she got married. You know, pretty cool couple, scientist, port wine, merchant, teacher. And his dad, actually, fun fact, his dad, Joseph Lister's dad, was the scientist. And he developed lenses for the microscope, the compound microscope, to be able to see things better and in higher resolution. But yeah, so Quakers, um, they were kind of discriminated against in London at the time in England. They weren't allowed in a lot of institutions, like educational institutions. So Joseph Lister attended Quaker private schools throughout all of his childhood. And um, actually, he Oxford and the University of Cambridge, they barred him because he was a Quaker. They didn't let Quakers into their school at the time. And so he attended the University College London Medical School. And he graduated from the University College London Medical School in 1852. And then he moved to Edinburgh, Scotland, to begin training under a Dr. James Syme. And at the time, Dr. Syme was, you know, he, he was thought to be one of the best surgeons in the UK. Like being able to train under him was a super great accomplishment or a super great opportunity for Lister. And Dr. Syme was so impressed with Lister that Lister became Syme's head house surgeon and Syme's assistant. So, like, I, I it takes a lot of skill and a lot of repertoire, like a good repertoire with your preceptor or with your like trainer, not trainer. That's not a bad word. Your preceptor, like the physician who is teaching you and training you, to become their head, like student house surgeon. 
is a big deal. And the fact that Lister was able to do that showed just how impressed Dr. Syme was with him. And, you know, this was a super coveted position. And it basically allowed Lister to decide what cases he wanted to operate on. Because normally if you're, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in here in America, when you graduate medical school, you become a resident. And a re- residency is kind of where they train you on how to do surgery, how to kind of be a doctor in the literal sense under training. And you normally do it under another doctor who is kind of your preceptor supervising you. And eventually, throughout, as you move throughout residency, your position, you kind of elevate it. So you start off as like first year resident and second year, then third year. Some people become chief residents. So they're the resident in charge of all of the other residents. And then later on, you become an attending. So you're the one in charge of everyone else and you're like the head preceptor. But basically, Dr. Like Dr. Lister's equivalent was like he became chief resident and super coveted. And, you know, obviously being able to decide what cases he can work on gives him more autonomy. It gives him more time to be able to do other things like research, clinical things outside of the surgical room and, you know, whatever else he wanted to do with his time. Um, Lister eventually married Dr. Syme's daughter, Agnes Syme. And I like Agnes because, you know, we think... At the time, you know, all women, they weren't allowed to do a lot of things. You know, they didn't really have their own name. They didn't really have a lot of autonomy, a lot of job positions. But Agnes came from a family of doctors. You know, she grew up around that. She was, that that was normal to her. That was home to her. And from what I was reading, Dr. Syme, he seemed like a pretty involved dad. Like, he didn't bar Agnes from learning about any of the medical stuff. He didn't say, like... You know, you can't be in the lab, you can't be here, any of that. And so Agnes, when she grew up, she as she was growing up and with the way she grew up, she just was fascinated with medical research. And um, Agnes and Joseph Lister, they actually had a really sweet thing going on. She was his lab partner for the rest of her life. So from the day they got married, or probably even earlier, but definitely from the day they got married to the day of her death, they were lab partners. They worked together in his lab. She would kind of like let him bounce ideas off of her. And, you know, if she had any input, she would add it in. He would take it into consideration. And I, I thought that was just very sweet. You know, here was this girl growing up in a family of doctors. She wasn't barred from anything. She was allowed to let her thinking, like she was allowed to let her critical thinking develop, allowed to ask questions and rev- like loved asking questions and loved learning about medical research, and then she married a guy who pretty much was the same, you know, he he loved being able to have her as his partner in life and in the lab, and it just seemed like, like, obviously she was still limited in the time that they were lived in, but, and, like, the bar is so low, right, for, for it to be a decent guy back then, like, you just don't have to bar her from, like, wanting to learn, but I don't know, like, for the time, it just seemed like a really sweet, caring relationship that she had with both her dad and her husband. But anyway, so because remember, Lister was a Quaker and the Symes were not Quakers. They were Episcopal. So, you know, how are we going to get married? So basically, Joseph Lister left the Quakers to be able to marry her and he joined their church. He joined the Episcopal church. And we know Joseph Lister. So the main thing we're going to talk about today is what he's mostly known for, which is like hygiene 
in the medical field and hygiene in the surgical field and like how do we keep ourselves as safe as we can be from getting sick and that's what he's mostly known for but like he did a lot of other things in his career he worked on like identifying he did research on identifying the different muscles in your eye he did research on like determining your the early stages of any inflammation in your body like what to look for what it would look like he looked at like the nervous system control of the arteries in your body but like so many other things that he did in his career but obviously we don't have time to go through all of that so we're going to focus on what he's most known for but i did want to point out that he did do a lot of other things with his time you know because we're going to like in his career because me people believed in miasma theory like the air itself was the the big bad disease causing thing the hospital wards where they did cert like the hospital wards where people were laying in bed and recovering they were aired out so the doors would be open the windows would be open to kind of let the air like recirculate which isn't a bad thing it's a good thing to kind of get like fresh air in um but there were still no hand washing stations or like facilities and there were no stations to clean a patient's wound so like yeah the air circulation is good but like the main cause is still there so it it didn't really make much of a difference it kind of just probably made patients feel better to breathe in fresh air but like yeah um surgeons were not required to wash their hands they didn't have to they didn't they actually took pride in the stink that they had so like when you when you're doing a lot of surgery and you get a lot of blood on you obviously you're gonna stink and obviously you're gonna get stains on your clothes and like i said before it became like a big status almost like prideful thing to have all of those stains and all of that stink on you like oh like look at how many surgeries he did today that's great but like no hand washing so when lister was a professor at the university of glasgow he became a professor there he read our old friend louis pasteur's paper remember the paper on how microorganisms cause food and and drink spoilage so lister read that paper and in the paper pasteur suggested three ways to eliminate these microorganisms first way is filtration second is heat exposure and third is exposure to chemical um solutions so using those three things you could get rid of these microorganisms and you could potentially decrease the rate of infections and normally what happens in science field is when someone publishes a research paper obviously they do it after doing multiple trials that give them consistent results and reliable results but just to make sure that this is factual and this is accurate and this is like a, a thing that you can use when papers get released other scientists and other labs will recreate those experiments and make sh- and see if they get the same results that this paper got and if they get the same results then it's like cool this is reliable this is factual this is accurate information and if they don't get the same results like if a lot of scientists and a lot of labs are not getting the same results then they can kind of raise a red flag like hey maybe we should do a little bit more in-depth look at this because we didn't get the same thing and it kind of is just like a two-step checking system and so lister kind of did that with louis pasteur's paper he read this paper he thought it was interesting so he did, recreated those experiments and he confirmed pasteur's findings with his own results and he kind of 
realized like, oh, this is a big problem. And he wanted to find a technique for patients' wounds that could help clean them and a technique for doctors and medical students to stop spreading all of these infections. Um, however, the issue with like humans is that you can't or you shouldn't filter their tissue, like their skin, and you shouldn't like heat up their tissue. So he kind of was only left with the third method, which was exposure to chemical solutions. And Lister kind of set his focus on that. So in 1834, this chemist named Friedlieb Ferdinand Runge discovered phenol, which was also known as carbolic acid. And at the time, there were like two main um, solutions, one of which was creosote, which was used to clean like railway ties and ships and like prevented wood from rotting. And it was also used to treat sewage. And then you had carbolic acid. So I don't, I don't know how his brain, like, I don't know how Lister's brain came up with this hypothesis, but he knew that creosote was used to treat sewage. So he basically was like, well, let me use the other one, the carbolic acid directly on people's wounds and see if that works. I don't know how he like thought of it. If he thought like, hey, if this one's used for sewage, maybe I should just use the other one. I don't know. But luckily for us, he did. And so he started um, using carbolic acid. He sprayed all the surgical and medical instruments that he used with it. He sprayed all of the, anytime someone made a cut in surgery, you would, he would spray the cut with carbolic acid, all the dressings, so like the gauze, the cotton was sprayed with carbolic acid. And he found that when he started doing this, once he started doing this, all in patients, the incidence of gangrene just significantly went down. So before this, gangrene is basically when your tissue like dies. And so back then, if your if your tissue died, they kind of pretty much just amputated the limb. So like if your if your toes died, they would cut the toes off, things like that. And obviously it is last resort, but when he started doing this, gangrene just significantly went down. And then he Lister was like, oh, like a light bulb went off. So then he started doing that pretty much consistently in his office. And then we get to August 1865. And a 7-year-old boy at Glasgow, he came in to the hospital because a wheel ran over his foot or his leg, not his foot. A wheel ran over his leg and he had a compound fracture, which is basically when the bone is sticking out of your body. Like you can see the bone outside of the body. And what Lister did. So when you have a broken bone, generally, and this is speaking from like my knowledge, like I'm my medical knowledge as a medical student, so it's not perfect. But from what I know and from what I've heard is that when you break a bone, the, the best thing that the doctors do is they put it in a sling or they immobilize the area so that you can't move it and the bone will, will heal itself. Like it will fuse itself back together. And so that's pretty much all Lister could do. But normal, like he, because it's a compound, like it's an open bone, you have to wrap it in something. So he took this cloth, Lister took this cloth, dipped it in carbolic acid, and then wrapped it around the boy's fracture. And, you know, you change the dressings 
every set time period. And after four days, Lister, you know, was changing the dressing and he found that this boy had no infection, which was just mind blowing, right? Like in a time and an era where infections was rampant, especially if you had like an open wound on your body, it was just a given that you were going to get infected. But no, this, this boy had no infections. And after six weeks, his bones were just completely fused back together with no issues, no infections, no inflammation, no pus, nothing. He just was outstanding. Like Lister was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. Like I have to let people know about this. And he published this finding in The Lancet, which is a medical research journal in the UK. It might be in all over Europe, but I know it's definitely in the UK. And he basically made like published it as a series of six articles that ran from March through July 1867. And because of this discovery, Lister, all of the surgeons that were under his responsibility, they were, because at this point, like he's his own, he's running his own patients, not running, he's treating his own patients. He's a doctor himself, so he's training other people as well. And all of these surgeons, they had to, they were required to wear clean gloves for each patient. They had to wash their hands before and after operations with that carbolic acid solution. All of their surgical and medical instruments were sprayed with carbolic acid. All of the operating rooms were sprayed with carbolic acid. And it worked, you know, it was it was a pretty, pretty good thing. And he, Lister, left Glasgow University, which is where all of this was happening, in 1869. And he went back to Edinburgh, remember where Dr. Syme was? He went back to Edinburgh to take over Syme's position because Syme, I guess, stepped down or retired or whatever, but Lister took that position. And he became professor of surgery at the University of Edinburgh. And he basically just continued to work on his antisepsis and asepsis theories. And at this point, like Lister was super famous. So people, like hundreds of people came to hear him lecture, up to like 400 people I I read, would just come to hear him lecture. And the germ theory of disease became more understood at this time. And so Lister's experiments and his articles and his research really just kind of oomphed, like emphasized the idea. And people started, it finally started to click into people's heads, like, hey, we could better avoid infections if we just could prevent the bacteria from getting into the wounds in the first place. And this is when like the aseptic surgery became a big thing. And this is when people were just like, oh, like this, this is a really good thing that we have and we should probably keep this going. So I see, I, so there's Antisepsis and asepsis. He Lister worked on both theories. So antisepsis means that you're trying to destroy the germs that are on a surgeon's hands, that are on the instruments, that are in the immediate environment. So, which is what he started off with. And then asepsis is having a completely sterile environment. So everything is free from germs. So you're using a combination of like hygienics and antiseptics to just make sure every single thing in that room is clean. So I know like when when medical students and like pre-medical students go into an operating room, everything is in blue. And everything in blue, all of the instruments that are on a blue cloth, all of the surgeon's blue cloths, they're all sterile. So you are not to touch them 
at all because they've all been completely sterilized and they will like all of the nurses and the doctors will yell at you if you go into the operating room and you touch stuff that you're not supposed to touch because that means they have to sterilize everything all over again so don't don't do that but yeah and at this point Lister was super famous and actually he was he is considered by a lot of people in the medical field to be quote the father of modern surgery unquote so obviously Lister had a lot of admiration and a lot of respect among the general population but like I said the medical establishment isn't really fond of change and so even though he was you know pretty revered by the public and now he's so honored by people at the meeting in like in 1869 and in 1873 okay so in 1869 there was a British like a meeting between medical people at Leeds and he Lister was mocked in that meeting and then 1873 after he published his series in the Lancet the Lancet itself actually warned the entire medical profession that Lister's ideas were too progressive and to not listen to him and they were against it which is you know like wild to me but he did have supporters who you know other surgeons who did use his methods and other people who other surgeons and doctors who did support him and use his methods but you know it's just like sad to see that it, like the institution was just the institution was just so against change and being told that there was a better way and that they were wrong in the beginning it's just like it could have probably sped things along a lot more but i digress and you know carbolic acid was a spray that was like lister kind of relied on but it wasn't perfect it was very irritating to the eyes it was very irritating to like the respiratory tracts and you know too much if you like spray if you didn't dilute it enough it could actually be damaging to the skin because it's an acid and so you kind of had to like modify his methods a little bit but it worked for the time being so eventually it became replaced by other chemicals but he Lister then in 1877 moved from Edinburgh he left his position at Edinburgh he left his father-in-law's past position and he moved to King's College Hospital in London and was elected the president of the Clinical Society of London and you know like he did at this time obviously he did a lot more stuff which was he helped develop a way to repair kneecaps using a metal wire and he improved the technique of a mastectomy which is when they remove the breasts if you have um breast cancer so he worked with those and he was he was a surgeon known for using a lot of things like a lot of novel techniques like he used sutures like cat gut ligatures he developed an aortic tourniquet um obviously like the diluted version of carbolic acid for surgical use but like he did a lot so you know props to him um and that's kind of where his career highlights end and in his later life you know Agnes and Joseph Lister were obviously life and lab partners but in 1893 they went on a holiday to Italy they went for a vacation in Italy but Agnes got pneumonia and she died she got acute pneumonia and she died Lister still had a job like he was responsible for 
running King's College Hospital, especially the surgical wounds. But it, it kind of almost seemed like when Agnes died, the light in him died because he pretty much lost all his passion for research. He stopped his private practice. He pretty much only did the bare minimum of his responsibility. He stopped going to social gatherings. Um, like writing didn't appeal to him anymore. He didn't really care for it. Learning and studying didn't really appeal to him anymore. He pretty much just went into a super depressive state, which I mean, can you blame him? He seemed like he really loved her. And, you know, as his lab partner, it seemed like she was kind of his like driving force. And then when she died so suddenly and so quickly, I think it just took such a big toll on him that he just couldn't really do much. And in 1895, he retired from King's College Hospital and he just kind of just lived his life the way that he did. He did have a stroke and so he wasn't in the public for a lot. He just kind of went in from time to time. And actually he was appointed as surgeon extraordinary to Queen Victoria. So like he basically was like Queen Victoria's surgical doctor and um, became senior surgeon of the medical household of the royal house. So basically he was like the head honcho doctor for Queen Victoria and her entire royal family. And then she, Queen Victoria died, sadly, but she, she died. And then the year after she died, he became the head honcho doctor to her son, King Edward VII, who like succeeded her. And that's pretty much what he did for his end days. And then on June 24th, 1902, he had... So King Edward, he was the one who had appendicitis for 10 days, and he eventually went under surgery, was operated on by a Sir Frederick Trevis two days before his coronation. So two days before King Edward was, you know, going to become king, he went under appendectomy surgery. But um, obviously, like all surgery at the time, and even now a little bit, but even more so at the time, surgery was a super high risk of death by infection. So they, you know, surgeons refused, they didn't dare operate on the king without the approval of the highest surgical authority they could get, which would be Lister, because he is the highest surgical authority if you are the advisor to the queen regarding, or the king in this case, regarding medical stuff. So Lister, you know, was contacted for a consult, like, hey, we got to do surgery on this soon to be king, what do you advise? And Lister was like, okay, you can do the surgery, but I would advise you to do, like, use antiseptic methods. So follow, like, sterilize everything, use the carbolic acid, da-da-da-da-da. And they did. They did follow. They listened to his advice. They did everything to the T. And the king survived, which obviously because he became king, but he survived. And he based the king told Lister, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here today. He said it in a more formal way. I'm paraphrasing. But that was the general gist, like, if you know, if you weren't here and you didn't do the work that you did, then I probably would have gotten the infection and unfortunately died. So good for, good for Lister. And then on February 10th, 1912, Lister, Joseph Lister, he was at this point became Lord Lister. He died at his country home in Walmer, Kent at the age of 84. There was a huge public funeral at Westminster Abbey. And then he was buried in London he actually was buried next to four other noted men of science, Darwin, Stokes, 
Adams and Watt. And to this day, we still talk about Joseph Lister and all of his contributions to medicine. And I think he had a very fascinating life, a very fascinating brain, just to be able to, you know, see what the issues was, what issues were at the time, make the connection of what was causing it, and then figure out a solution to what to do. I still don't know how he figured out that, like, hey, if creosote was used for sewage, let me just use carbolic acid. Like, I still, maybe my brain just doesn't work that way, but I, that is, like, one of the most fascinating things to me. And I really enjoyed how he and Agnes kind of, how Agnes kind of, like, helped not helped because I, I don't really know the gist of their relationship, but it seemed like she had a positive effect on his like thinking and his created like creative solution ideas just because after she died, he just wasn't as interested in research and medical advancements since then. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I probably i'm gonna do an infection next episode so instead of like one person we'll talk about an infection that's been happening throughout the world not currently but we old back then <laughs> but yeah thanks y'all for listening and see you next time